Hello and welcome to the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Barbara Fisher, and today I'm talking with Dr. Massimo Teodorani. He's an astrophysicist who has studied anomalous light phenomena internationally for years. He's also an acclaimed author and musician. Susan Demeter, witch, author, artist, and investigator, is his wife, and the two have joined forces to study the paranormal together. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome uh, to Massimo and Susan. How are the two of you doing today? Wonderful. Thank you for having us back, or, well, me back. And, uh, and yeah, I just, I love talking to you. I'm excited to be back. I'm fine. I'm very happy. I'm fine and I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for having me in. And um, I'm very curious to your questions. Oh, good. Good, because I've, I've wanted to talk with you for a while. As soon as Susan said you studied anomalous light phenomena, my ears perked up and I was excited. Uh, we talk about anomalous lights here on the podcast a, a great deal because it's generally most of what I've experienced in, in frequency. You know, I've experienced other things, but they aren't as frequent as seeing anomalous lights, not only in the sky, but down lower, close to the ground. And I would really like to know what your research has been on that phenomena and and what sort of things have you found out about it? Because I know you just wrote a book. Yes. Well, um, the book is quite um, complete, and it's good that um, you start when you when a physical scientist speak about this kind of uh, controversial phenomenon. It's good to it's good, but um, it's not formal. But it's important to do that to show which kind of uh, light phenomena can be effectively explained in a prosaic way. There are many natural phenomena that can be explained in a prosaic way, including the uh, so-called orbs. Uh, you know, when you you photograph uh, out of focus. Uh, uh, simple dust or snowflakes or insects using the flash of the camera, you have this kind of bubbles, but this can be explained very easily as something absolutely prosaic. There is nothing uh, uh, nothing esoteric in this, and there are many other phenomena that can be explained. Uh, so I speak about this in, in, in the book. In the, um, there is a very long introduction. And I speak also about other uh, natural phenomena that are not very well explained, like uh, ball lightning, for instance. Um, I speak about so-called ignis fatus or other electricity phenomena like corona effect or something. There are many electrical phenomena that can be explained very well in a very simple way, okay? There is a theory that says that um, some kind of light balls that are seen uh, quite frequently in the world, such as the Stalin lights in Norway, where I did a lot of research, 
um, some this kind of phenomenon can be triggered by PSO electricity from the ground. And then it happens when rocks are fracturing under the ground. This creates PSO electricity. It creates voltage in the atmosphere, ionization inside the air, and then you have light bulb. Well, this is well explained also, uh, how to say, um, several experiments uh, been uh, done in, in the laboratory, uh, such as the one by Professor Friedman Freund, um, German-American, who is uh, working about these things uh, for a long time. So there is um, something that is explained, but uh, I want to focus on the main point, the main mystery. The mystery in, in the scientific sense, namely something that must be solved in some way, is that um, if it's piezoelectric effect, we do not understand why uh, a light bulb is lasting so long time, uh, such as uh, up to two hours. Okay, You see this spherical light bulb that are floating in the air, uh, and this shouldn't happen to the law of thermodynamics, because when there is uh, uh, atmospheric ionization, uh, the um, plasma, namely um, soup of electrons and ions, <coughs> cools down immediately, and uh, the light effect should last not more than six, a few seconds. Instead, these light bulbs are lasting for a long time. And this is a, the biggest mystery, because if uh, we un understand the mechanism that is confining the plasma for so long time, then we could be able to reproduce it in a laboratory, and maybe we could use it to create an alternative way to produce energy. So this is the, uh, the importance for physics. Uh, apart from that, there are then many other strangeness uh, that uh, must be mentioned, uh, such as changement of shape. Uh, all of a sudden, some these light bulbs uh, split into a cluster of many light bulbs, like a cluster of light bulbs. They change the shape, and uh, and sometimes they acquire geometric shape such as rectangles. I took photos about that, about a rectangular formation uh, in Stalin. And also other shapes, also like a conical shapes or geometric. Okay. So this is nothing, how to say, nuts and bolts, but sometimes they become geometric. And we don't know this. So a scientist wants to understand why this happens. Uh, for instance, I'm thinking about the uh, snowflakes, which are very geometric, but they are a natural phenomenon. Is there any similar effect in plasmas at some specific situations? Maybe um, in concomitance with a very strong magnetic field, magnetic anomalies or something. So the idea substantially is that we have to use the same philosophy, the same procedure, that we use, for instance, in astronomy, when we measure uh, 
celestial uh, luminous bodies like stars, galaxies, planets. And we apply the same methodology to these lights because the physics is exactly the same. The only difference is that these photons are coming from something that is very close to us. And this is very good because they are very luminous and the more these things are luminous and the better is the physics that you can obtain. Namely, the signal to noise ratio is very high and this gives a good physics. The problem is only that these phenomena are not like stars. We don't have coordinates uh, where to find them. They appear randomly. And, and so the, the only way to make everything easier is to go to some places of the world where this kind of phenomenon occur more often. One is a Stalin, but there are also others in the world, including the United States, uh, like uh, the Yakima Reservation, like the Brown Mountain in North Carolina, Marfa in Texas, and uh, also other Joplin, for instance. There are some places where, for some reason, these things are happening very often. So this is just an introduction. I love everything you just said because I'm I'm a lay person, I'm very interested in science uh but my my ability with mathematics is uh just embarrassingly horrible which is why i didn't go into science but what you're saying is fascinating to me because i have you know i i've never taken photographs of orbs where i didn't see something first you know the the whole dust in the camera thing I, in fact, it wasn't until last year that I even thought of photographing what I was seeing. I originally thought that it was more something that I was seeing uh, with my inner eye, not my actual physical eye. Then last year I took some photographs and by golly, there was, there were lights in there and they, they were where I saw them. And they were different, though. The color was different. Uh, they showed up on my, on my camera as a very pallid yellow and orangish color, not the really brilliant color that I had seen. The shapes were different in the camera. So I was fascinated with that. And then, of course, you know, I'm thinking about plasma, and I'm like, how does plasma change color when it's low in the atmosphere, down near the ground? You know, why is it moving around and changing shape? You know, what is actually going on here? And so that's exactly what you're talking about. You're talking about why do they do these things? How can it change shape? How can it change color? What electromagnetic force is causing this and so yeah. can you can you describe your idea of what kind of electromagnetic field is necessary to change plasma into different shapes or different colors well um, i am i try to answer to 
the description, description of your own experience, okay? What I think the movement could be created by um, several factors. It could be um, difference of temperature inside the room. So a higher body, a plasma has a temperature that is much higher than the ambient temperature. So it tends to mm -hmm. go upwards. This is normal. It's a convective motion. But uh, if the... Um, the um, uh, temperature in the room is not homogeneous, it can go randomly, it can move through this gradient of temperature. It can depend also on wind on, or, or on something else. The changement of color uh, clearly is due to a changement of temperature. The uh, bluer is the color, the higher is the temperature. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, when you go to the red, uh, it's uh, lowest uh, temperature. The point is that we know this from Planck physics, and we uh, this is a color temperature. Okay, but we don't know if the we don't know yet if the this kind of plasmas are real um, plasmas or, or something else that is producing that light. I'm reasoning according to our knowledge. Okay? Uh, and the only way to try to understand that is to take spectra using a dispersion grating of light, which I've been using, but it's very difficult because uh, the phenomenon should be standing still. If it moves, the photo of the spectrum of it becomes blurred and you cannot do anything about it. It's, um, I'm asking you to, more because the plasmas that I've been investigated are different from the one that you have seen. How big were um, the plasma lights that you saw? How big um, were they? Um, it's, I generally see them outside. I have seen them inside structures, inside a house, but that was, you know, almost 30 years ago, and it's not this house. I have never seen them in this house. That's not true. I saw one once. But um, mostly I see them outside, mostly in forested areas, uh, not heavily forested, just, you know, I would say third growth forest here in Ohio. Yeah, interesting. Uh, so they're, they're not huge trees, but they're not little tiny trees either. Mm -hmm. Well, lots of undergrowth because, you know, the trees aren't big enough to block the light at the, at the ground level. Uh, of course, I've seen them mostly at night because they're self-luminous. Yeah. And, you know, when you have daylight, you can't, you know, you can't compete with the sun. Uh, I have not seen them. You know, when I've seen them, the weather conditions are almost always clear. So there's no electrical activity that is noticeable to, to us. So there's not lightning. There's not um, any sort of uh, weather phenomena going on uh i'm very very careful to think about 
ground water because, you know, everybody always teases about J.L. and Hynek <coughs> saying swamp gas. <clears throat> but he's right. Swamp gas is a possibility in, in a marshy condition. But pretty much while there is abundant water, usually underground springs, in the areas I have seen it, it's not particularly marshy. There's not a lot of decomposing uh, yeah. plant matter. You know, you don't have the smell of the sulfur compounds and, and you know, the methane and all of that. That's not uh, a factor. Also, I have, I will say that the composition of rock in, in, in the, the bedrock in this part of Ohio does have some amount of quartz in it. Yeah. There's also, yeah, there's also a lot. Uh, it's, it's limestone with quartz mostly. Yeah. Uh, and of course, sandstone, it's a lot of sedimentary stuff because where I am is where there was once uh, an ocean uh, way back yeah. in geological time. So it, it's mostly made of sediment uh there are significant carbon deposits here we we live in a former coal mining gas mining and uh oil mining area and and now we have some amount of uh the gas mining through fracking so that's there but it's not where i'm seeing these sorts of of light phenomena they're not very big, generally. They tend to be somewhere between what people would suggest is a ping pong ball size up to uh, like grapefruit and maybe just a little bit bigger than that. Yeah. Uh, because I've had them come close. That's the thing that, that, you know, is disturbing to me is they seem to move not in a random way. That part is, is weird to me. Yeah. Uh, but that's about the size they are. I also am in contact with other people who have experienced it. One woman had a blue one, the size of a ping pong ball fly right past her face. She and her friend were sitting next to each other smoking a cigarette on the ground and one hovered uh, you know just about 20 feet away and then zipped between them and then it stopped when it was about 10 feet in front of them and hovered and sort of bobbed and then disappeared uh, and to me that's very very strange um but what was really interesting is the cigarette pack was sitting on the ground between them and this little light made a buzzing sound kind of, she said it was kind of like the way locusts sound when they fly that that sort of metallic mm -hmm. buzzing sound and when it flew over the cigarette pack they noticed after it disappeared, they went to pick up another cigarette because they needed one after that. And the pack was melted. Oh. It, as if from heat. And so it took fire. It she, took fire. 
Yes, it 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 was hot enough to make the cigarette pack that cellophane melt. Wow. And it, and it was it was sticky to the touch still when she reached down to pick it up. Mm-hmm. And she said it it moved so fast that they didn't really feel a flash of heat, but it, it as she said afterwards that their faces were kind of you know, on the side where it had been because it flew between them. So on her right side and the uh, and the friend's left side, it was a little tingly. Very so interesting. That is interesting. It's yeah. very interesting. Uh, it's uh, interesting because, uh, well, it seems that, the, first of all, it looks like to be a thermal phenomenon, uh, clearly. So mm-hmm. it's a real plasma kind of plasma. But it's not creating uh, um, and temperature emission in all directions because if not, also the people that were there would have been hurt. So mm-hmm. it's possible that it emits beams of beams, a channeled beam of radiation, something like a laser, practically coherent radiation that not necessarily is visible. It could be in the infrared, for instance. I know that because I was discussing with a German colleague that uh, this kind of light phenomenon can produce beam of light that are very thermal. They can put fire, literally. Uh, and uh, But this uh, thing happened um, in a place uh, that was in Russia, in the Ural Mountains, and the phenomenon mm-hmm. were not... Uh, the dimension of a ping pong ball or uh, or an orange, but they were several meters uh, wide. Right, emitting a um, strong beam of radiation that was putting fire all around. This has been seen um, in several situations. It's not rare, but it doesn't happen often. But it happens. And uh, in um, in Brazil, there was a place which was called Colares in the um, uh, in the beginning of the eighties, more or less, which was investigated by the military of that country. And uh, there were people who were hit by beams mm. of uh, radiation, which are, were visible, uh, like laser, laser, something like that. People started to fantasize, telling, oh, yeah, there are the aliens that are um, uh, shooting with their uh, death ray or something like that. But there were people who were wounded, literally. And someone died, he also died uh, there. Mm-hmm. And it happened there, but also in India. And um, not very often, but it, they can create this effect. And it's a beamed um, emission of radiation. Namely, it's not a spherically symmetric. Otherwise, people uh, would have been burnt also, in addition to yeah. the park. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's what I, I, I said to her. I said, well, you know, <laughs> it's, it's good that it was a single focus type of radiation phenomena it wasn't going out in every direction because you know you would have been burned too 
Yeah, that's pretty move. wild. And, and the bean can move randomly. I was going to just. You, oh, sorry, Susan, go ahead. No, I was just going to just say that from my perspective, um, I think the first thing that would probably pop into mind was um, did one of them actually want to quit smoking? Because, <laughs> because that seems that seems very directed and i i don't know i do feel the consciousness plays a part um and our own consciousness plays a part in in these types of encounters regardless of what they may be and when you were speaking massimo earlier about the brazilian encounter um in Colaris, which did result in in severe injury and death um, Brazil is also known for injury and death in regards to poltergeists, which is not necessarily true of other cultures and countries. So I've always find that interesting anyway, um, that when it comes to uh, paranormal or psi-like phenomena, if you want to put these light balls or these UFO type encounters, if you want to put it under that umbrella, that in Brazil, also has that, um, you know, in the poltergeist or the haunting type cases as well, where people have, have been seriously injured and died. Um, mm -hmm. So I have to wonder from my, from my own perspective whether there's something going on um, with, uh, you know, the culture and society that people are in and their own headspace and what they might be thinking or even subconsciously thinking, I want to quit smoking, and then this light bulb appears mm -hmm. and just it doesn't burn them, but it burns the cigarette pack. So anyway, well, I'm sorry to interrupt, but to it, this is the thoughts. No, no, it's okay. It's, <laughs> it's very good Let's hope it happens to me yeah. too. Eh? So send me, send yeah, me you a light bulb on my, on my pack. I, I got to quit. Yes. Anyway, it's possible <laughs> that beaming uh, of uh, radiation, uh, it's not something that is... Uh, Intelligent, yeah. but uh, if you have a plasma uh, which is very strongly rotating and uh, there is a very strong magnetic field that is intrinsic to the plasma, it happens that uh, it's something like an apple. Uh, the um, magnetic line are open to the poles. If it's strongly rotating, plasma can go out from the poles in the, sh in the form of beam like laser, more or less. Mm -hmm. And uh, these beams move erratically, uh, depending on the wind, depending on the local magnetic field, depending on the electrostatic charge that you bring. Because sometimes they tend to be attracted by people and by animals because of we are charged of electrostatic uh, thing, uh, charge. And so they are attracted. If they are opposite charge, they are attracted naturally, not because they are intelligent. This doesn't exclude an intelligent nature because I am considering also that aspect clearly in a very secret way, but uh, I, I have uh, several speculations so far, but only speculation. Right. Um, I wanted to uh, tell you of two situations that my daughter, Morgana, who couldn't be here today because she's she's right at the beginning of uh, the last two weeks of her semester in college. She's finishing her degree in history. Okay. Uh, again, 
she's very interested in 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 science, but the math is just I mean, it's actually worse than mine. So, you know, she didn't get to go into that, but she she was raised in part by a grandfather who was a, a chemist. So she she's heard about science. She knows about science. She knows the theories. She just can't do the math to go along with it. Anyway, she's had two sightings, one which she photographed and then one which was extremely uh, dramatic. And it, it was brought to mind when you were talking about the the spinning movement of of the uh, plasmas. So the first one, which she photographed, she saw both of these happened at night when she was taking her dog out for, for a walk. And the first one was what appeared to be two spheres of red light, deep red light above her head at about, she said it was about a hundred feet up. So it, it's, it wasn't that far up in the sky. And they looked like spheres to her, but when she photographed them, they actually were blobs because I, I looked at them and I digitally, you know, in, enlarged it and uh, upped the, the uh, contrast a little bit. I don't have, you know, great skills in that area, but I can at least do that and saw that they were not spherical as they had appeared to the eye, but were actually more blob-like, which could it indicate that there was uh, a, a field that wasn't equal on all sides that was shaping it. Um, she said there was no sound, so there wasn't a sound like a drone would make, when I looked at the photograph and, and enlarged it, there was no structure to be seen. Uh, and she, she said that not long after she snapped, the, I think it was three photographs, uh, they, it was gone. Uh, so that was interesting. Oh, it's very interesting. And yeah, it, it, it's, you know, the color I thought was, was very interesting. And she said it was fairly close to the color she saw. Um, and then the second one was last year and she was walking the dog. It was very cold out. She lives near a solar array, a, the a community solar array. So we have a few solar arrays around town to, uh, feed some of the city's uh, electrical needs. So she wasn't right next to it, but she was well within a quarter mile of it. I mean, it wasn't that far away. You can see it from her house. You kind of have to go up a, a, a slope and then you can look over and there it is. So it's not far. There are also some high tension lines that carry that electricity outward. So those are there. And I know these lines cause electromagnetic fields, fairly strong ones. Uh, so, but this was odd. She, she was walking with the dog and she looked up and it was near the high tension lines. 
there were blue and red spheres, fairly small, about, you know, the size of a little bit bigger than grapefruits, she said. Some of them were like tennis ball sized, and then some were a little bit bigger than grapefruits. And they were spinning around each other in this complex, brilliant display. She said it was almost like it was jumping up and down saying, hey, look at me. Very interesting. Yes. And, And she said she walked toward it because it was just so fascinating and the dog could see it because the dog was interested in it. And she said she, she started walking toward it and then, you know, kind of realized what she was doing, shook her head and was like, I'm not going to walk close to that. I don't even know what it is. (laughs) You know, (laughs) she said, she said, so she stopped and then backed away. And as if she said, you know, it was like, it saw me and it saw me back away. As soon as I backed away, she said the light scattered in every direction and disappeared. And so when you said about the spinning, that's exactly what I thought about was that weird sighting. And of course I got a call late at night. (laughs) Mom, mom. uh, Spinning in which way? In the sense that the orb uh, was rotating very fast or that it was orbiting around? It it was flying. It was both. Rotating. Yeah. It was, it was both. She said, you know, if you looked at an individual one in this grouping, it appeared to be spinning, rotating on its own. When you looked at them all together, they were orbiting each other. And and she said it looked like a regular pattern that it was doing it. You know, she said it was almost like, and, and she said, I think what I first thought it was, was, you know, how people in, um, circuses and 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 festivals have the balls on uh strings that light up and they spin it and then they make all these complex patterns she said that's what it looked like she thought for a second that somebody was practicing out at one o'clock in the morning in freezing cold weather (laughs) so she walked toward it being like who's doing this you know that's really crazy and then she did of course there was no one there and then she kept walking toward it and then was like, oh, wait a minute. I don't know what that is. I sh- Nope, I'm going to leave now. You know, and then she backed away and it disappeared. It, it no one shot flying, off in every direction. And no one was flying drones uh, in the area. Where it was difficult to see anyway. No, because I, I, yeah. I see this artwork uh, done by the Chinese drones or what recently oh, yes. in Russia. They're making fantastic uh, spinning uh, around each other in very perfect location uh, because they are controlled by a computer. And so the, all the pattern yes. is controlled by, by it. This I'm just not explaining, but always I want to try to, to find the noise in order to find the signal. I believe she has seen the signal clearly. It's very interesting. Um, I'm just thinking. It's very interesting case. Yeah, I, I, that was the first thing I asked. I said, was it a drone cluster? You know, do we have somebody in town who, you know, has that capability? Because there is a, a university here. We even have a small particle collider. 
Um, so yeah, that, that was my first thought. She said there was no noise, you know, there, there was no sound to it at all. And that of course, you know, always, you know, puts up the warning sign to me that, it, that this is something unusual that if there's no, sound. yeah, there should be a sound I would think, you know, um, if it was a drone, definitely. Yeah. Like they're, they, they sound like the, actually they sound like what you had described before with the cigarette pack, that kind of locust. Yeah, except stuff. that was the Yeah, so it's 90s, not going to be a drone. So, but I mean, drones have a very yeah. distinct kind of sound. They, you know? yeah. They do. So they do. Creepy. Interesting. But, you know, yeah, but right. good for good yeah. for Morgana not to have followed along with it because, you know, my mind goes immediately to, you know, the folk tales of following strange lights into the forest. And yes. I mean, we have places here in Italy where you just know, you know, if you follow the lights, you're going to either drown in a, in a lake or you're going to get lost in the forest or you're going to fall off a mountain. Like, and these are folk tales that go yeah. back centuries upon centuries, probably millennia, you know. So, no. If you see yeah. <laughs> strange lights yeah. at one o'clock in the morning, she no. knows better. <laughs> she, yeah. And that's the thing. She knows better. Yes. I taught her from an early age because where I lived and where she visited me when she was a small child is where, you know, the lights would come into the house. Yeah. Uh, so I was like, if you see, don't, first off, don't go into the woods yeah. without mom. Secondly, if you see lights in the field and they go up towards the woods, no. don't follow them. Just don't follow them. How about let's not ever just yeah. follow the lights. And she did try to, to run into the woods one time I was watching her and, you know, I, I came around the corner of the house. She didn't know I could see her and she ran towards the woods and she told me, that what she saw as she was running towards it, thinking she was getting one over on me, uh, she said that the path kind of moved. It appeared to move. And so she was like, oh, you know yeah. what? No. And she turned right around and came running back. And I said, what did it do? Yes, exactly. <laughs> she said, mm -hmm. yeah. So the, the folklore is, is there. And I know that some of the Native Americans, like the Shawnee, who were around here, long ago before the settlers displaced them they had stories if you see the lights in the yeah. woods don't leave don't them follow be. them so yeah yeah well it's like massimo um has a colleague in um south america i think is, is it argentina where diego is diego escolar yeah, yeah, yeah. he is yes yeah yeah, he he um, is studying the lights in the field, and um, and he works with a South American shaman um, who are very very private about the lights, and they feel it is their ancestors, and they are allowing him to do work with the lights, like examine them. But it's there with you know the the um, you know the idea that that he's not going to disrespect their culture or bring in a lot of people who, because I mean, to them, it's, it's their ancestors that are these lights. So, you know, um, there is that respect that has to be there when, when dealing with different cultures and, and different people and how they, they view the lights, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's great. Um, when he mentioned, when you mentioned the Ural mountains, Massimo, 
mm-hmm. when I first started seeing the the lights often and outside uh, was in the 1990s. And years later, I read Dr. Valet's book, uh, The Cosmic Samizdat, where he talked about going in the 1990s Russia. to Russia. Yeah. And he talked about the lights in the Ural Mountains as well. And that's mm-hmm. one of the first times I was like, now, wait a minute, you know, that this is being seen elsewhere. And then I heard about Norway and, you know, I read about uh, Dr. Artie Sixkiller Clark collecting stories about lights in Mexico, and they considered them to be their ancestors. And that's when I realized we are looking at the same phenomena, but they all are being explained folklorically by uh, lay people differently. But they're the same thing that, you know, that scientists are looking at it. And so there is something that was the first time I really realized that this was an a phenomena that wasn't just all in my head completely that, you know, I mean, I saw them with other people, but you know, there was a part of me who was like, we're all seeing an illusion. We're all seeing the same hallucination. And yeah, there's a part of my brain that goes, you know, when you see the same hallucination, maybe it's not a hallucination. No, it's not. Just, just, just throwing it out. (laughs) It appears uh... when I realized over time that this is a recurring phenomena in different parts of the world and it's real. And that's, that's when I really started looking into it and not trying to label it with any kind of folkloric belief. Not that I was saying, no, you're wrong. It was more, I wanted to try to see it without labeling it in my head. And that's, that's, I think that's really interesting that there are so many scientists quietly working on this. Not so many in reality. Um, there are quite few and they are quite reserved, clearly, because uh, inside the academia, um, you know, there, are, there is a lot of gossip. Uh, and science is a very good institution, no, no doubt. But uh, in some aspects, it behaves something in a way like a church. You know? So if mm-hmm. a scientist gets uh, interested in this kind of things, there are a lot of prejudices which are irrational, completely irrational, uh, thinking that the scientists are interested in them because they are searching for aliens. It's not so. They are interested in the physical phenomenon, whatever it is. It could be also alien. It cannot be excluded, but uh, it, it's the physical phenomenon because a scientist has a duty, uh, uh, the first duty of a scientist is not to to keep the the flame of uh, knowledge high like a Templar or like a, um, a priest or something. The, the duty of a scientist is to explore and exploring sometimes is quite risky. You have to take a machete and get inside the forest. You're risking to be beaten by bad animals or something. Uh, uh, innovation costs a 
uh, a big price. And um, mm -hmm. I know that, but it's worth it because anomaly is what brings to us innovation. Anomaly means that something in our models, which are very good, by the way, there is something that doesn't work. And so we have to investigate rationally and also using our intuition. If we have some intuition in our mind and we want to make speculation, we are free to do them clearly. We have only to say this is a speculation, not a theory, a speculation. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they bring us to, to big discoveries. I, I, I agree. When I say many scientists studying it, I mean more than one. Um, oh, okay, okay. <laughs> to me, to me, any more than one person is yes, many. I would say Be it's a, more than one and, and less than five, like fingers of a hand, more or less. See, to me, that's that's a lot of people because I I oh. do uh, understand that the scientific community can be very rigid and very conformist and most of the people who are doing these sorts of studies are it seems to be they're doing it on their own time on their own dime because they're not getting a lot of uh funding for this so they're they're doing it for the passion of learning something new it's understanding so something new and and then, you know, as you say, bringing innovation to the culture. And I, I really, you know, I wish that, that there were more scientific institutions that acted in that way, that realized that when you ask the difficult questions and when you see something that's anomalous and you want to understand it, that that is, I don't want to say sacred, but it is sacred. It is the sacred duty of science to go after that and, and try to understand it and try to bring that understanding to everyone else. Um, I mean, I know that sounds a little churchy or religious-y, but I do think that that is something that should happen. Um, so, yeah, it's 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 hard when you're doing something that is not supported by the the scientific yes, community at large. There is also a practical reason because, differently from the stars, which we can find always at the same coordinates in the sky, these phenomena are not predictable. And so they yeah. cannot uh, an experiment, observational experiment, where we acquire data on electromagnetic field. Uh, spectra, optical, infrared, we can obtain this kind of data. But science says that if we, I find something with, with those instruments, they say, rightly, other scientists must confirm the same thing. Mm -hmm. Okay, So there must be a consensus. Science is made of consensus between several people. If a phenomenon is reproducible, then yes, it's true. If it's not reproducible, if it is random, it's difficult to accept it. And I understand why. 
because it's it's no. um, not uh, not predictable. Okay, even if we take measurement, that's not predictable, and and that's a problem uh, for for science. Uh, recently, there is uh, the capability to use uh, automatic measuring stations, where you can uh, catch this kind of phenomena automatically with uh, and track this phenomenon like uh, like a radar is tracking uh, a fighter in the sky it's possible to track them and um, several um, if several instruments are measuring the same thing from different observer then yes we can say yes this is scientifically proven uh, this is the proceeding of science and this is a very difficult but it, we can overcome this problem. Well, that's that's part of why uh, the study in Norway is happening because it's it's more predictable there that that these phenomena have been appearing over and over over a period of years. Yes. So that's good. <laughs> that is very very good. Here, where we see them, th there's no predicting it. There is no, it's always surprising. Um, so, yeah, I do wonder what's causing it. Uh, but in Norway, uh, that y there is the possibility of having these automatic stations that will measure it when it appears. Yes, uh, in, in the sense that uh, there is an alarm system uh, where the magnetic field becomes very high, and then there is a system that alerts a camera, including also an infrared camera, which aims at the target. And when the target is seen, can be tracked uh, continuously. So this helps us to follow the target, uh, possibly like if it were standing still, practically. It's like uh, the mm -hmm. counter air, what the you know in military do in uh, um, tracking uh, an airplane with a radar. It's the same concept. In that case, you can con mm -hmm. obtain data all the time, and using artificial intelligence, it's possible to interpret what we are observing. Because if you put inside the database all known phenomena. Then you can choose, you can find what it is, and you, you can immediately um, say it's an anomalous phenomenon or not. And um, now we have the technology to do much more in this field. What sort of things ha have been found in uh, the case in Norway? What, what sort of data has been uncovered from this sort of technique? Yeah, well, we have used the several instruments that range from uh, um, optical reading, videoing, uh, photograph, uh, telescope, using of telescopes, spectroscopy, um, electromagnetic spectrum, magnetometry, ultrasound, a lot of, a lot of instruments and radar. A lot of instruments have been used. What we uh, found is that, first of all, we didn't uh, understand yet the confinement mechanism of the plasma. 
we didn't understand yet. We need many more data. But we were able to describe with our instruments, with our recordings, what witnesses are seeing. One thing is a witness telling a story, and another thing is when you look at the light curve of the variability of the phenomenon on a chart. So you can measure that. You quantify, you understand why the phenomenon is um, changing its luminosity. For instance, we thought that it's because it's inflating and then contracting. Absolutely not. The reason is due to the fact that all of a sudden, around the um, luminous nucleus, uh, you have a, a, um, a cluster of many other light bulbs that all of a sudden appear all together and increase the radiant surface. So luminosity increase because it's, uh, it goes with the square width of the radius of the surface, emitting surface, as seen from far away, and with the fourth power of uh, temperature. So this is the Stefan Boltzmann law that we, we apply to this kind of phenomenon. Then we um, could measure that we, we uh, saw that in many cases, the apparition of phenomena when they are particularly close, uh, the, um, uh, show a perturbation of the magnetic field. And sometimes we see uh, pulsating magnetic fields that uh, uh, has been seen not only in Stalin, but also in other places of the world. And also, we discovered that, that um, when we think the phenomenon is disappeared, in reality, it's still there. Because uh, looking with the infrared, um, uh, we saw in the optical, we all of a sudden phenomenon disappeared. But when we took infrared system, the phenomenon was still there. So it's a kind of plasma that probably exists most of its time in, um, uh, how to say, um, long wavelength, a longer wavelength than the visible, so in the infrared. And uh, so that's the reason why we want to use more infrared in our next investigation. That's really interesting. Uh, that's what I was wondering when you started talking about infrared. I'm like, oh, I wonder if when it disappears, it's still there. It's still there. <laughs> because, of course, our our visual acuity, our the the light that our eyes pick up is is different than you know. The, we we do not have full spectrum eyes. <laughs> we have very little not. spectrum eyes. Yeah, I always. Than I us, always yeah. Yes, they are. I that's the other thing. You know, when I lived in that house where the lights would come in, interestingly, my husband only saw them uh once in that house. Uh generally other people would see them when they were outside. He never saw them outside or in the house until the last night we were there, one of the little weird red ones came in and was moving around and he said to me, "Uh, do you see that?" And I said, "Oh, yeah." And he said, uh, you see stuff like that all the time? And I said, yeah. And he said, you know, I said I, I wanted to see him. And now, you know, I kind of don't. Uh, <laughs> 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 he said, if that's what you see all the time. He said, you see different colors? I said, yeah. We had a cat who 
at that time in that house used to just run around the house acting like she was chasing something, but we couldn't see it during the day. And then one night I got up and I saw her chasing the lights down close to the floor. And that's, that's probably what she was doing, but she, she had epilepsy and she, she died not long after that, like a, like a year later. So she had an epileptic seizure when we weren't home. Oh, poor. Um, so yeah, poor kitty. Uh, but you know, we always used to laugh and say, "Oh, she sees ghosts," but no, she was seeing whatever those little light balls were. That's what she was seeing. Now, I mean, maybe they are ghosts. I don't know. Well, they could be UFOs too, because when yeah, when you were talking about this, I was thinking that not only have I had this experience with what I perceived as a structured craft or spacecraft that seemed to just kind of bob along in the wind, so to speak, and then disappear, but, but I had the sensation that it actually was still there. Um, but I've also, mm-hmm. as a UFO investigator, which I was taking case reports and, and talking to people for both about 15, 20 years, I've had that more than once where people have said, you know, it seemed to wink out or it, it you know, I lost sight of it, or, you know, but I felt like whatever it was, was still there, you know? Yeah. And mm-hmm. it, it just yeah. left the visible exactly. spectrum. Exactly. Yeah, Keel talked about that too. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I think it's interesting that that you both are looking at this phenomena from different points of view. I think that's really interesting. Um, so can you talk about how these different points of view work together as, as, as two different kinds of investigators. Sure. I think that they can complement one another. I mean, Massimo is looking at this from a physical point of view, whereas I have, and he's always done that being a scientist. Whereas for myself, I started off more as a nuts and bolts, but now I'm incorporating much more my magical and my witch self into my own investigations. But that can also complement because as witches, you know, we very much appreciate the physical realm, the physical world. And uh, mm-hmm. we did go out a couple of years ago, early on in the pandemic, we went up into the mountains to this place called um, uh, Lago Santo, which is the Holy Lake. Uh, and it has a, a nice folklore about this lake where there's these light balls. Massimo had gone up there a couple of times before, but when we went, we met with someone who is very experienced in, in um, the mountains, and, and, and he's a naturist, and he has had a lot of experiences with these, these lights, which he views somewhat as spiritual. So we met with him up there, and, and uh, Niccolo Tosi, and he, uh, so we went up there to, and we decided to do an impromptu kind of lake watch. And Massimo, we had, a, we had a camera and a tripod and we didn't have lasers. Like it was very impromptu. We were just kind of, okay, we're here. You know, this is where these lights are. Massimo had been up there before. Let's just see what happens. So it was kind of spontaneous. I did a little ritual earlier on in, in the day at the lake and I saw these lights. Now, Massimo didn't see them. 
at least not on that occasion. And then when um, our companion came and, and joined us, I described what I saw and he was like, yeah, this is, this is exactly what people are, are describing up here, that they've been describing it for centuries. It's almost like a, a siren type thing where you have these lights and they're associated to a witch and you know she kind of takes you off into the forest or the mountains or whatever. So I had done this ritual and uh, to see if I could um, actually, you know, uh, get in touch with the spirit of the, the land, the lake, see if I could provoke something with this light phenomena. Okay. And uh, so the evening comes, our companion shows up, he's got a tripod, he's done work along this lake as well. By the way, there was also stories of um, forest rangers and, and other people who had seen UFOs as well as the light bulbs in this area. So we thought this is cool. We're going to set up, and uh, they so the, the, our companion who brought his camera and, and the tripod, Massimo, helped to set it up. Made sure that the camera was good to go. Sunset, cameras working fine. We do test shots. So our friend goes out into the forest to try and he's he does his own thing to try and. Uh, you know, flush out these lights or, or commune with these lights, which he does his own meditations and such. And I was sitting there and we didn't have a laser pointer, which is one of the strategies that they sometimes use in the field to try and stimulate these lights to see if that it's worked in Hestalin before and other places. But I had a flashlight. And so as I was sitting there with Massimo and he's ready and the camera's ready to go, I start doing flashes with the, the flashlight. I don't even think I told Massimo I was going to do this, but I started doing this, and my, my flashlight literally fell apart in my hands. Like, I mean, it started to fall apart in pieces, and I'm like, this is weird, okay? Yeah. And then he goes to take pictures, and the camera jams. Like, it's not working. <sighs> And yeah. like, and we thought well, this is really weird. So, our, our companion comes back, and uh, you know, and, and we're saying we're sorry, but we don't know what's going on here with the camera. He starts laughing, and he's going, "Well, this happens at this lake often." And mm. sure enough, as we start packing it away, he tests the camera. The camera's fine. We mm -hmm. we get back. Massimo and I were staying in this mountain refuge. Um, which is really, really cool little place up in the mountains where you can, where hikers go and they spend the evening. And it's really nice, um, really rough, but really, really atmospheric. And so we get up there, I go into my pocket, I lift out the flashlight to, to show Massimo, look, it's in pieces. You know, can we fix this? It's in one piece again. Oh man. It, it really, that scent chills. Yeah. And it's like that trickster. Yeah. It's like that trickster like effect. And see, this is this is because you had mentioned about um, combining sort of forces and how we can do things. And I've I've been trying to strategize ways of of creating ritual, creating space where these lights can appear, and you know, in in all humbleness, you know, see if they will allow us to photograph them. But it's very difficult, you know, mm -hmm. because they are spontaneous and when you have that forefront in your mind, so to speak, and it's, it's not just something that you're encountering that you're like, whoa. And by the time you get your camera out gone, um, when, when you're pre-planning these things, um, 
you know, it, it, there's always something, the batteries fail, the camera jams. Mm -hmm. But what we would like to do, I think Massimo would like to do this as well, is um, go to Hestalen maybe next year and uh, or another another hot spot maybe here in Italy and maybe I could do my ritual type things and and he could you know my my magic and and he could do his science and we'll see what happens um Massimo's tried to do these things before with people who um for various reasons whether they're they're psychics or they've had multiple experiences just to see if um, you know, like a lighthouse, certain people are more mm -hmm. beacons towards these experiences and see what happens. But I want to go a step further and actually do magic and mm -hmm. see, see what we can, we can conjure up. <laughs> I, I like that idea. Yeah. Rustle up Rustle. Some, some lights. And see if you uh, can get something on the instruments for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it wasn't until... Like, almost a year ago exactly last April that I ever photographed anything uh, when I first started seeing them and they would come into the house was back in the 1990s mm -hmm. so you know that was film cameras and who had their film camera carrying around all the time nobody mm -hmm. uh, and of course it happened at night so unless you had a tripod and all of the stuff you're not going to get anything but now that we have smartphones with cameras on them, we we have the opportunity to take photographs. Mm -hmm. And uh, last year was the first time, starting in March and the beginning of April, one of the things I did is, is the lights started appearing in the woods behind the house. Um, and there's two windows, three windows I can look out and, and watch. And I, I have a cat that would sit with me. So he, he saw it as well. He was always very interested in it, still is. Um, so I, I, had, I was sitting there watching it, and he was watching it. And I realized, you know, you have a camera. Why don't you hold your phone up with the camera on and see if you can see it through the phone? Mm-hmm. And of course I could. And I said, aha, so I can. And so the first time I did that, I didn't take a photograph. I was like, you know, I, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna jinx it. I'm just, I'll, I'll do it another time. I chickened out. Then like two nights later, a very impressive display of lights and glowing objects that look kind of bipedal were out there. And I said, okay, I, I looked through the, the camera and it, through the phone and I said, oh yeah, it's still there. And I got up my courage and, and took a few photographs. And that's when I realized, oh, hey, you can see these things on a digital camera. You can take a photograph. There are real photons out there moving around doing things. And uh, that's that's when you know Morgana ended up a, f a few months later taking the photographs of the red splotches in the sky, and uh, that that was one of those things. I was like, interesting. Now I wonder if I can call them. So I haven't done that yet, 
they mm-hmm. they do tend to be cyclical here. They tend to be very active in the spring and the fall. They sometimes are active in the summer as well, but not as regularly. So this spring, I'll see if I can call them into uh, existence and, you know, that would try be not to... super interesting. It would try be... not to cause That's trouble for the, yeah. the household. <laughs> yeah. We did get a photo um, where we live. There is a, a, we call it the Holy Mountain, but it, it really is a mountain that was, um, and I've discussed it, I think, before with you uh, on the show, um, this mountain that was very special to early Christians and pagans as a place of worship and a place of communing um, with the gods. And it was also the site of a uh, Marian apparition, a fiery Marian apparition in the 13th mm. century. There's an, an, an old Templar chapel up there, but an even earlier Christian one, which is on top of an Etruscan uh, uh, temple that you can actually visit the runes in the undercurrent of this chapel. But anyway, we saw strange lights up there. And there have been some reported, again, over centuries. And I managed to capture one on the phone. But the odd thing about it is that it was in such a position as the light was over the chapel. And so I called Massimo over to our back uh, balcony. And I said, look at the mountain. There's there's this strange light there. And he's, well, maybe, maybe it's a Catholic festival. Maybe they've turned on a light or something, which seemed reasonable. And that light was there for quite a long time, I think at least a few hours, because I checked on it a couple of times, but then I got up at like 3 a.m. or something and had a a look outside again and it was gone. But I managed to get the phone, the picture, like with my phone. And uh, we kind of forgot about it. I I did look up to see if there was any Catholic um, uh, festivals or anything. And this is of course in pandemic time. Well, anyway, (laughs) almost a year later, the kids come to visit from Canada and we decide to take them up there to see the chapels and that. So there was somebody, there usually is somebody up there in the summer um, just to make sure everything is is safe up there. And there's a little gift shop and a little station for hikers and pilgrims because they still do pilgrimages to the top of this mountain. And Massimo asked this lady, well, you know, can you explain, like, we saw these strange lights from the top of the mountain near the chapel. And Massimo, you can tell the story. She was kind of shocked, wasn't she? Oh, yes. Um, because I know that there is a big, uh, a big uh, light, a big uh, headlight uh, on the top of the church, uh, close to the bell tower, just... Um, to illuminate the area, to illuminate the square of the church. So I thought they turned it on because probably there was a fest of some kind. Then I went, uh, when we went to to the mountain and I asked this woman, was there any fest that night? uh, And she told, well, these lights not on turned on since 30 years so we don't use them oh. at all and the only fast that we do we do them at 5 p.m uh, but not uh, at night so 
And oh. at the time, the church was completely desert. So it was yeah, not... Yeah, because it was the, also a pandemic. It was not the, the headlight of the bell tower of the church at all, even if, if there is, but it was not turned on at all. It's not on since 20, 30 years. <laughs> wow. But it is a trickster because honestly, like it, the picture itself, I can tell you this story and, and but you're going to have to take my word for it. Um, there, I think that that's the problem with the, all these mobile phones that we have. We can take these pictures, but for a purpose of like something like evidence that for Massimo or for a scientist, you would need to take um, a photo with uh, with a spectral grading so that you get the mm. you you get what he's looking for, which is different. I mean, I think it's still really cool that we can get these our, our our mobile phones and we can we can now get these lights. But for his purposes, I think, and it's actually not that hard. Massimo has helped people to try to do their own citizen science. Um, like our friend Mark in uh, Belgium, where, you know, and other people that he has talked to that have tried to get pictures of these spook lights um, using uh, kind of MacGyver type methods of spectral grading, <laughs> 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 um, where, they can, where they can try and get something that's more useful for the scientist. And I think, Massimo, do you have something on your website that can... Maybe you should put something on your website if you don't have it, um, explaining I to people it. how if they want to get, yeah, if they want to get I real photos, like, well, not real photos, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> Data. Uh, it's, Data. It's, uh, this comes from my colleague, a physical, man, um, a physical chemist, uh, who, uh, whose name is Dr. Ron Meisters with whom I've been um, working uh, testing a particular kind of spectrogram. And he uh, um, found this possibility. You can use a smartphone, and then you take a piece of a CD-ROM, you know, the old CD-ROM, you cut it, and that part works like a spectrogram, like a grating. It's the part uh, oh, wow. that has... Um, lines on it and then that part is transparent almost transparent so you cut um, edge on the the cd-rom and then you put this um, thin foil in front of the lens of the smartphone and then you can take ah. the spectra of the lights but you need uh, that the light is very low. And it's logical because the, um, the opening of the lens of a smartphone is so small that a very low quantity of photons enter inside it. The number of the capability of the camera to record photons is proportional to the square of the area of the, of the lens. And in the case of, of the smartphone, the lens is only one centimeter. Instead, in the case of a normal camera, it's 10 times more. That's the reason why a normal camera anyway is infinitely better to take a photo of the right. Sometimes a smartphone can be very useful, but 
only when the phenomenon is closed uh, or and or extremely luminous. In that case, yes, it can be very useful, especially for video. And uh, yes, but there is a very practical way to take spectra in uh, taking a CD-ROM, cutting it, gluing on the in front of the you make a you know a standalone thing uh, of the smartphone, and then you you take spectra. Huh. I like that. Low resolution. Uh, in many cases, uh, not useful because if the spectrum is continuum, uh, there are no emission lines. You you don't have a lot of information. But sometimes there can be emission lines, and uh, you can uh, understand uh, atomic transition inside uh, the plasma. You can measure temperature density of the atoms that concurred to create that spectral line and, he, and sometimes also the magnetic field so um, a lot of physical information can be obtained from a spectrum if we are sufficiently lucky to get a good spectrum clearly with a smartphone you cannot obtain something incredible but who knows they are lucky people well you know, also, there are people who have digital cameras that are actually cameras. So yeah. the lens would be larger and the yes. aperture would be larger. So yeah, that's, need, that's an interesting you idea. Need, I like that. Inevitably, uh, DLSR cameras because with interchangeable yeah. lenses, because you see it's very large. It's uh, 10 times larger the diameter. So you can obtain a very good image with a higher resolution and with an exposure time that is uh, 10 times shorter. So it's good to have a good camera with you in any case. Yeah. yeah, I don't think my husband would care for me taking his SLR and uh, gluing some... some uh, CD-ROM foil to the lens, but I could probably MacGyver something with uh, one of the older digital cameras we have. It might be, uh, you never know what you might get. Um, yeah. Massimo got a very interesting uh, photograph from Hestalin, um, which shows uh, what looks like a, um, a rectangle within the plasma ball. And why I find this so interesting myself personally looking at, because I look at these things again from a folkloric, magic, uh, symbolic content, is that, and this is little known to, to people, I think, outside of Hestalin, but there was at one time, I think in the 1990s, uh, a large piece of earth that was in a perfect rectangle that was near the site of where these strange light anomalies and sometimes even humanoids have been seen um, in the area of Hestalin. But anyway, this large rectangular piece of earth that was so huge and perfectly moved and disappeared, it's just this random giant kind of doorway in the earth, seemingly to me, I connected it in my mind to potentially that plasma ball showing the rectangle, the rectangle, the doorway in the sky, as above, so below. 
you know, in yeah. the plasma, in the earth. That's where my yeah. mind goes. Mm. And Massimo has that photo. So again, like if people can yeah. do this, even, you know, if you're, you don't have to look at it from a mystical point of view, you look at it from a scientific point of view, you never know what you might capture that could help the scientists try to unlock whatever is going on with, I think they're potentially life forms. That's just me, but um, whatever they may be, you know. They certainly yeah. do seem to be intelligently controlled in movement. There is something supported by science uh, <clears throat> that must be mentioned. We are still in the case of uh, speculation, but uh, scientific speculation. Uh, in 2007, there was a paper, technical paper, which was published on uh, online, peer-reviewed, journal, which is a new journal of physics, which um, practically is showing the experiments done by German and uh, Russian physicists on plasmas. And they uh, tried to make plasmas interact with dust particles. And what they noticed that plasma all of a sudden start to behave like uh, the DNA of uh, biology. They behave in a, uh, how do you say, um, uh, spiral form, a spiral right. shape, identical to the Double DNA, helix. Double helix, which is uh, also able to replicate like DNA. So from that oh. uh, experiment that was also done both as a numerical simulation and as a physical experiment aboard the Russian space station of the of the, of the 90s, uh, the near space station before the present uh, before the they did this kind of experiment and noticed that plasma in particular situation behave like living beings literally, and um, and this was uh, revolutionary. It was absolutely revolutionary, and um, if you we unite. This finding, which is extremely important because it's quantitative, with um, the theory of consciousness in the brain, like the one from um, uh, anesthesiologist Stuart Emeroff and uh, mathematical physicist, uh, Nobel Prize, Roger Penrose, they say that practically the brain um, uh, acquires its consciousness because it depends on microtubules inside the brains that are in a state of, of quantum entanglement between each other. When the wave function that describes this unity collapses, it's a technical term, you have a moment of consciousness. At this point, I thought, this is my speculation, what if instead of microtubules in the brain, we consider particles inside the plasma? Because in that case, not only a plasma would behave like a living being, but could have also consciousness. If you have particular situations in which the plasma particles are entangled together, so without interacting with the external and isolated, well, we could have something like a, a living being. 
And it's strange because plasmas have been studied in the past and they behave like a, a unity. Like a, if you take a plasma nebula in the interstellar space, and which is uh, light years long, if you do something to the to a part uh, after the light years, on the other side, there is a reaction. It's something, this is theoretical, but it's something that shows that plasmas behave like a whole unity and not like billion particles. So there is a lot of research that must be done here. Um, regarding, I think it's very important. I think you're right. Um, you know, th this is all very, very important and, and I think very fascinating because we, I, I really don't think we understand how consciousness arises exactly anyway. Um, and I just edited a book for a friend, for Joshua Cutchin, and a lot of what he's saying in this book, which is, you know, from scientific research and folklore, um, spiritual studies, it, it's all in there, you know, it has to do with consciousness, it has to do with energy. And this, what you're saying goes right along with, you know, what that manuscript is, is going on about. So I do think it's very, very interesting that there are people from all different specialties and worldviews and academic uh, levels and disciplines looking at this from as many directions as possible. And I think it's, it's really interesting what the physicists are bringing to this, you know, even if it's just a handful of y'all, that's okay. Um, that, that you all are bringing to this. And I love the idea that you and Susan work together from totally different worldviews on this, on this spectrum, and you can just bring it together. I think it's really important that she's people very stimulating. Look at things. <laughs> she's very stimulating. Yeah. Thank you. Well, she, you know, I do, I do, I think so. Yeah, she's really, really, you know, not only is she whip smart, but sometimes she just, her, her experiences bring a lot to the conversation. And I, I really like that, you know, I'm able to bring your all's perspective to the people who listen to my podcast because Lots of people have contacted me who have seen lights in various contexts. And again, it's been one of my obsessions for at least 25, maybe 30 years. So I do find it's in, it, it very interesting. Um, and also that other people are seeing glowing looking humanoid shapes at, in Norway, you know, where there are scientists like hanging around. Um, because, you know, if I say, well, I saw humanoids, yeah, well, <laughs> I could, I could be hallucinating again. Uh, but that's great. 
I am so glad you came to to talk with me today. Oh, I'm too. super excited to be back. And I know. And we are we are actually taking our ideas, and we are going to be writing a book. Actually, I think we're about thirty thousand words in. And oh, hey. And that that book will include um unusual light forms and uh and and talk of of the plasma light balls and um it's not completely about that it's more about the um the possibility of a physical afterlife okay and beyond so it it's yes. uh so the, the the conversation tonight has been great because it's it's stimulating to keep on working on that project because you know you hard know what enough. it's like to write a book it's it's you know it can be it's hard yeah it's long yeah and also it's Barbara's, a process barbara's stories are cinematographic literally i was just looking like yeah. a movie all the uh, stories about the light bulbs uh, and morgana's yeah it was amazing oh yes, yeah, yeah. she's you know, if you ever want us to write it down for you, we can we can do that. Please do, so, please do. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. No, it's it sounds it, like, and especially because of the forest, and you were talking about the underground water and that. Um, and I I have seen I've seen swamp lights as well, and I've known what they were because they were swamp lights. But the lights that we saw, or at least that I saw, and others have seen. At that holy lake where we had all the problems with the cameras and that, they were they were different. They were like uh, similar to what was being described by Morgana. Only they were darting around at different points of the mountain and the forest. Mm -hmm. And at one point there too, I thought I saw a large shape moving mm -hmm. around, which was a little unnerving. But um, but these lights, yeah. they 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 appear um in in various types of experiences whether they're um you know they're associated with haunted houses with um the deceased our beloved dead i've had experiences with them in a psychomantium but that's a show and that's another show unto itself <laughs> which i'd love to hear about yeah. so you know <laughs> if, if you ever want to do a show on psychomantium i i have tried that in my as a way of healing my own grief um, and I had experiences with light balls, uh, but they've also been seen as precursors and after to UFOs that, that look mm -hmm. like spaceships or other things or religious experience and they mm -hmm. go back centuries. So who knows what they are, but they're definitely very interesting and something that scientists like Massimo can look at. They can examine it because there is there is a physicality to it and yes. his work has already has already proven that in my opinion because he's gotten pictures and spectra and things that you know can can give them some idea as to what these might be <laughs> which is really that's, cool <laughs> yeah, yeah that's amazing to me um and do you have anything else that you'd like to say and can you tell uh, our listeners where they can find you. I will put all of this in the show notes. I'll, I'll pester Massimo for links to that last journal article he was talking about. And I'll, you know, the, the show notes for this episode are going to be 
probably long and extensive, but let us know quickly how, how you can be found. Yeah. <clears throat> well, the, 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 the first way is my website, which has been designed by my wife, Susan. Uh, um, it's um, MassimoTeodorani.com. It's uh, not capital letters, but Massimo Teodorani, all no dots, nothing, MassimoTeodorani.com. There you can see some articles um, regarding astrophysics, regarding uh, search for extraterrestrial intelligence, about plasma physics, about uh, the research I was speaking, about consciousness studies and quantum mechanics, and also regarding my music, because in my free time I am a, an electronic musician with a pseudonym Totem Tag. So if someone is interested in the German-like music, like Berlin School, Berlin School music, well, that's what I try to do in my free time. And Things now, like yes, the theme then, of for Stranger Things. <laughs> yeah. 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 Sorry. Yeah, I like your music. I, I of course had to go listen to it. I have a musician husband, so yeah. I had to go check it out. And we know where we can find Susan. Yeah. You know where you can find her. <laughs> Susandemeter.com. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. We know where you we know where you are. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you both. This is a great conversation. Um, I'd love to have you back again for for more stuff. And yes, I'll have Morgana and I write down the light experiences that we've had so that you have access to them. Thank you very much, Barbara, to have our scene. It was a pleasure to speak with you hear your stories and it will be a pleasure to to meet you again hopefully also yes, in person very yeah. much so yeah that would be great thanks susan thank you thank you well that's all for this week's episode of the six degrees of john keel podcast if you have any questions or thoughts about the podcast or would like to come and talk about your experiences of the paranormal you can contact us at 6djk67 at gmail.com. We promise to even answer you, and we are always happy to hear from you. Thank you. Mm -hmm.